Hi everybody, I'm Ralph Ben Murgy. Welcome to Yehopitzville, brought to you by Pear Tree Canada. Well, we're almost at the end of summer, if you're listening to this in a recent way, as opposed to in an archived way. Uh, been an interesting one. We're heading into high holiday season, every rabbi's favorite part of the year, as <laughs> they toil with the trouble of it all. Uh, I will suggest... Uh, Alan Liu, Rabbi Alan Liu's book, uh, This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared. Um, it's a beautiful book, and it really, it's a wonderful way to get into Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, so I would definitely suggest that to anybody who's interested in deepening their high holiday experience. Uh, if you want any info on stuff I do, go to ralphbenmergy.ca, my book, I Thought He Was Dead, my podcast, Not That Kind of Rabbi and uh, other assorted things, including my spiritual counseling as a spiritual director. So that's all there for you. Today, we're going to do something very interesting, mirroring in a way. Yehobitzville has been talking about Jews in far-flung parts of Canada and sometimes in other parts of the world. Well, there are people in the United States in small-town Jewish life who've decided that they're not going to just talk about it, they're going to do something about it. And my guest is somebody who's doing just that. Rabbi Rachel Isaacs is the Executive Director for Small Town Jewish Life at Colby College in Maine. And uh, she joins me now. How are you, Rabbi? I'm well, thank God. Nice to meet you, Ralph. Nice to meet you, too. You know, I, uh, I looked through a lot of the stuff on your site and was really interested in how comprehensive it was. It, it, it was an outreach to every generation. It was a beautiful thing. Tell me about how this came about. I often tell the story of the Center for Small Town Jewish Life from a personal lens, although it was a collaborative effort from the very beginning. Um, my colleague, David Friedenreich, who is the chair of Jewish studies at Colby College, invited the Jewish Theological Seminary, where I was a student, to send up a student rabbi to serve Colby College in Waterville, Maine, and a small synagogue that was facing rather existential challenges in Waterville, Beth Israel Congregation. And uh, Rabbi Billy Bo at the Jewish Theological Seminary, in his infinite wisdom, chose me to be the rabbi to go and serve Colby Hillel, which at the time had about five active students, and um, Beth Israel Congregation, which at the time had 19 dues-paying families. All right, wait, stop and, there, stop there. Sure. He says, this would be a good thing for you to do. This you go home and say to your family, oi! Well, it was a one-year student pulpit, so it was my fifth year of rabbinical school, and my tuition was paid for serving this congregation, and I thought, great, I get to fly <laughs> up to Maine once a month. I've never been to Maine in my life. It'll be interesting. I grew up in a very Jewish area of New Jersey. It was a town of, at the time, 30,000 with seven synagogues plus Chabad, right in the New York metropolitan area. And I went to college in Boston and went to yeshiva in Israel. So all of my experiences of Jewish life were in very well-resourced, large, diverse Jewish communities. And I thought to myself, all right, I'll go check out Maine. Seems interesting. And I was one of about, I think, 20 students sent to small congregations nationally. But of all the students, this program existed for about five years at JTS. I'm the only one that stayed. And part of that has to do with the fact that a lot of different forces came together to make a job for me that would work so that I could stay. And so my life took this very unexpected northern turn. I would say a left turn, but it was a northern turn right up to the Canadian border, right, in many ways. 
And um, <clears throat> what I saw was this incredible potential. I looked at the Hillel, I looked at the congregation, I looked at the Jewish studies program, and I thought, there's so much potential here. This can be so much more than it is. And, and David thought the same thing. And so we became a team many ways on building on what we saw as the untapped resources that existed <clears throat> in Waterville and in the state of Maine. So really, my journey begins with seeing a place that most people thought, this place has no potential, it's in the middle of nowhere, it's dying. And what I saw were these incredible resources for creating a radically different type of Jewish community. What do you mean by resources? The students at Colby, so there were five students actively involved in Hillel, but there were hundreds of Jewish students on campus. Many of them went to Jewish day schools, actually, or came from observant Jewish families, or were just really curious about Judaism and were willing and, and had a real thirst for spirituality and learning. And then, even though we only had 19 dues-paying families left at the time, those the commitment of the families that were left were like nothing I had ever seen in my life before. You know, I grew up in a suburban congregation in New Jersey, and if you needed a service, you paid for it. You need catering, you pay a caterer. You need a baker, you pay a baker. You need a janitor, you pay... Now, that's not how things work in small-town synagogues. If you want food, you cook it yourself. <laughs> if you want the synagogue to be clean, you pick up a mop. And... I actually was really inspired by seeing all of these individuals that really were putting in, it was like a second full-time job for all of them, just to keep the synagogue alive. And so I thought this is a great place to spend the first couple of years of my rabbinate. Colby College gave me a uh, faculty position when I was 27 years old to teach modern Hebrew. So I had a job with benefits and they came together informally but effectively with the local congregation so that half my time would be at the congregation and half my time would be advising the Hillel and teaching Hebrew. <clears throat> I want to jump in for a second. Sure. What I find interesting is if, for instance, you feel that you're in a, in one way or another, a dominant culture situation where everything's around you and you don't have to do it, it's like the level of secular uh, Judaism in Israel. Because yeah. it's everywhere, you don't have to do anything about it. Just like in North American culture and Christian culture, if you're Christian, you don't have to do anything about it. you got Christmas, you got Easter, you got Thanksgiving. I mean, it's all around you, right? Yeah. But when you're alone in a small town, you have to make the effort or it dies. Correct. So that's what, that's what attracted you, is that survival piece. That inspired me. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was just really inspired that generation after generation, my congregation was founded in 1902, that when I came in, the founding families, their descendants, and new people who moved to the community kept this congregation going for over a century on a shoestring budget with minimal population that were willing to work incredibly hard to keep Jewish life alive. And for me as a rabbi, that was inspirational. You know, I, I really believe that the greatest divisions that exist within the North American Jewish community, I think you could say the same about <clears throat> Israel as well, I think all over the Jewish world, the greatest division isn't between Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, even Sephardic, Ashkenazi. It's between people who care and people who don't. And um, even though most of the people at Beth Israel weren't traditionally observant, they dedicated themselves to an extent I had never seen before to keeping Jewish life alive. And I thought to myself, these are the people I want to work for. 
So how then do you, that's sort of 30,000 feet. Yes. How do you make that real on the ground and in a sustainable way? So there were many different pieces that came into it, and it happened iteratively over time. But the very first step of making everything work in Waterville, once I came up here, was how do I create critical mass so that when you come to a Hillel event or you come to a synagogue event, you don't just see this very sad state of affairs? Because if you only have four people at the shul for Shabbos and you only have five kids in the Hillel room for Shabbat dinner... If you're a new person that comes and looks, you say, why would I want to be part of this community? It's just depressing. And, and I heard that over and over again as I was trying to attract new members to both, both organizations. So it was actually my wife, who I work with, Mel, who said, we really just need to get the Hillel and the synagogue together because then we're going to have critical mass and then we're going to have a multi-generational Jewish community, which even 12 years ago when we started this work, the generational divides in the Jewish world were already starting to get extreme and nasty. And so we thought we might just be isolated enough that we don't need to just succumb to the generational dysfunction that we see in New York and Boston and the mainstream Jewish world, that everybody who's thirsting for Judaism might be willing to cross institutional, generational, denominational boundaries to just make something joyous and functional. And it worked. So we created this thing called Home Hospitality Shabbat, where in the winter months when we have a really hard time making Minyan because older people go to Florida, we brought the Hillel kids to Beth Israel. We brought our congregants to synagogue. And what we said was, we're going to have Minyan. And then we'll send groups of two or three kids to Beth Israel families so they can have Shabbat dinner in their homes. And this achieved many different goals. First of all, very few of the families in my congregation were celebrating Shabbat at home. But then you have all of these day school educated kids that know how to do Kiddush and Motzi. Then they are the role models for the kids in those families that get to see cool college kids taking Judaism seriously. And as mental health was beginning to decline on college campuses, which as we know has only gotten worse over time, then those kids have families in Waterville that they can go to for emotional and spiritual support over the course of the academic year. And so Home Hospitality Shabbat was really a seed that grew into Hillel kids going to the soccer and football games of congregational families, becoming B'nai Mitzvah tutors, becoming the Torah readers on the high holidays. And then the congregation started to grow because they saw a future. They saw vibrancy. They saw creativity. They saw support. And then what we had was Waterville Jewish families that were providing a whole host of <clears throat> resources to our students and in addition to the spiritual and familial support that they gave to students, they also provided an entree to understanding Waterville on its own terms. So Colby and Waterville, like a lot of college towns, has a lot of town-gown divides right. and a lot of town-gown tensions. And a lot of times, and this is not unique to Colby at all, there's this approach that the wealthy kids up on the hill feel like they need to be our saviors in this post-industrial small town. But the relationships between the synagogue and the Hillel actually never really had that dynamic because there was something they had in common, which was an interest in Jewish life. And these were Jewish and non-Jewish students that just loved Shabbat. But also there was always reciprocity in the way in which these relationships were set up so that the power balance would sort of alternate between both communities. Home Hospitality Shabbat was the beginning of programs that grew, some of them now drawing hundreds of people, of bringing all of the Hillels and all of the synagogues in Maine together to have these high-profile, vibrant, joyous, Jewishly pluralistic events. So that was the seed, and now where we are over a decade later is 
celebrations of Jewish music, culture, learning, and social justice that serve, you know, many, many hundreds of people every year, going from age 2 to age 98. So that's Maine. That's a small town. That's a town with a college. Yes. Which has a Hillel, which is functional. So those are some elements. Now, your programs are now moving across America. Yeah. Do you have, are there certain critical elements you have to have to succeed to the level that you've succeeded in your own town? Or can you do this without a college, without a Hillel? Can you do this without an older population that's been there for 100 years? You know, what is it that's the, 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 the right combo of things that mean you look at a place and go, we can work with this, and what makes you go, e- I don't know if this is going to work? The truth of the matter is we don't know, right? So we just received over a half a million dollars of funding from a variety of Jewish foundations <clears throat> to try and basically what they call in the Christian world church planting, right? <laughs> but we're doing something very different, and it's similar and different in that we're going to see is can this approach take root in other places? Can we identify a special sauce that supports clergy and lay leaders to adapt the values and strategies we've created in Maine for their local context that can lead to vibrancy and sustenance? What you certainly need is a committed core of lay leaders that are there for the long term. So I don't think a Hillel could do this alone. Right. The question is, can you do this for synagogues without a partner organization? You know, the other piece of this, of course, is that there were certain philanthropists that helped us on our way. So the question is, can those communities find philanthropists that are interested in giving them seed money to really get this off the ground, number one? And number two, can they create partnerships and multi-generational strategies that allow them to replicate in some way or another what we've done in Maine? And so this is our first year of what's called our Macomb program, which is our national outreach program, where we're working with four communities of small town Jews, working with uh, the clergy and the late leaders, creating a cohort of those leaders, both lay and clergy, so that we're reducing the sense of isolation. They can exchange best practices and also learn from that which is applicable to their communities about what we've done in Maine. Are they, so so for some of these, sorry to interrupt, so you pick four, did all four have the same combination of elements in play? Like, did all four have a university or college nearby? Did all four have a, an old community? What, were the, what was the criteria that made you say, oh, these four, not these four? Sure. So originally, we were looking for analogs to Waterville or analogs to Bath and Bowdoin, right? But what we found is that we couldn't find exact parallels. What we could find were small town congregations or small Jewish communities, to be more precise, that we're looking for guidance and we're looking to be part of a cohort of synagogues going through the same thing or Jewish institutions going through the same thing. So for our first cohort, really it was less about who we chose and more about who came to us saying, I'm, a, I'm just starting in the rabbinate and I feel so alone in this and what I learned in rabbinical school isn't helping me with the unique needs of a small Jewish community. Or lay leaders that are saying, 
look, we believe that our synagogue matters, we're committed to it, but we feel like we're out on this alone. I want to connect with other people in this network, and I want to know what strategies have been developed that allow small communities to grow and thrive in a world where more and more people are disaffiliating from institutions, Jewish and otherwise. And there's also a massive concentration of wealth and resources in major cities, much to the detriment of small towns and rural areas. So how did you do it and what can we learn? And at the very least, how can we just feel less lonely in what we're doing? So which four, where are the four that you picked? So there's Bangor, Maine, Honolulu, Hawaii, Lexington, Kentucky, and Chico, California. Wow. All over the place, literally. All over the place. A lot of diversity in that group, you know, and we're going to have to figure out this. We're going to learn through this inaugural cohort. Are Honolulu and Bangor similar enough to be part of a singular community? Are their challenges similar enough that that makes sense or not? Right. And so we're also going to learn if people have the wisdom, but they don't have the resources. Is it enough? And if it's not, is the world of Jewish philanthropy willing to invest um, in these small communities? You know, in many ways, when people talk to me about my work, I say, look, I'm a small town rabbi. I have my own congregation in addition to teaching at the college and leading the center. But a lot of the work that I do is actually in wealth redistribution. A huge portion of the work that I do is going to major cities, telling the set the story of the center and of Jewish life in Maine, garnering resources from New York, LA, DC, San Francisco, and redistributing it to rural New England. What, what's the elevator pitch? What, what's your, 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 your big first hit? Usually when I'm giving the elevator pitch, I focus on a few things. I say, first and foremost, I believe that every Jew matters. And I'll say, do you believe every Jew matters? You know, and of course, most people say, of course I do. And then I'll say, do you believe that Judaism is a privilege and Jewish community is a privilege that should only be enjoyed by those who have the resources to live in the 12 wealthiest urban centers in America? And I say, of course not. And I say, well, if that's the case, looking at the way in which population and wealth continues to concentrate itself in those areas... If you really believe that rural and middle and low-income Jews deserve the resources of a vibrant Jewish community, ultimately it's up to you to redistribute those resources so that the people in communities like mine have the dignity and the richness of Jewish life, of having a rabbi to perform a funeral, of somebody being able to hold their baby as they give them a name, right? If you really believe that every Jew matters and every Jew deserves this, then it's up to you to step up to make sure that there's real equity in the American, or in our case, North American Jewish community. So if I say no, I'm like a total yes at that point. <laughs> Just like... If you say no, you know, then I'll say, you know, thanks for the coffee, I'm moving on. But yeah. what's interesting is even when I go to places <clears throat> in New York, LA, whatever it may be, the initial funding for the center came from mostly Colby alumni and parents. But what's interesting is that even those that live in major centers right now, a lot of times I would talk to people and I'd identify folks that grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, that grew up in rural Mississippi. And so when I would tell them the story of the center, they'd say, you know what? I grew up a small town Jew and I know exactly what you're talking about. 
that's how I grew up. That What you're describing as a synagogue I grew up in. Now, Judaism was so important to me, I had to fight for it so hard, that I ended up moving to a major urban center, not just for employment, but because I didn't want my kids to struggle Jewishly the mm. way that I did. But I understand the struggle and the beauty of what you're talking about, and I want to give to it. And <clears throat> there were two funders that were really on the cutting edge of supporting our work. One was the Covenant Foundation, and the other was Natan, based in New York. The Covenant Foundation, um, our first gift, came from a whole team at Covenant, but the executive director at the time, um, Harlene, uh, may her memory be for a blessing, she, she just passed away recently, when we were interviewing for the initial large grant for the Center for Small Town Jewish Life, I remember we're being interviewed and grilled about our grant. And she said to me, I just need to stop you here, Rachel. I grew up in Elmira, New York. And you know what? She pointed to all these famous Jews that run the American Jewish community today that grew up in her small synagogue in Elmira, New York. And she said, small towns produce leaders that transform the Jewish world because we know that if we want something to happen, we need to do it ourselves. And so there actually are a lot of small town Jews that, you know, we're sort of creating this identifier who know exactly the ethos that we're talking about, the ethos that attracted me and kept me in Waterville, and the ethos that produces really exemplary Jewish leadership. And because of <clears throat> Harleen's experience as, as a small town Jew, and then ultimately with Natan coming in to help us get the word out, that really transformed a lot of the discourse that we're having in the American Jewish world around class and geography when we're having larger discussions about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can have that conversation in a holistic way without talking about class. And I think that that's the role that the center is really taking up. I think another advantage from what you're telling me about small-town Jewish life is you can't afford to cleave off into your sects. Yeah. You, you can't be the Reform Synagogue and the Conservative Synagogue and the Orthodox, but the New Orthodox Synagogue. You, you, you have, everybody has to find a way to bend towards being Jews together. I think that's absolutely true. That's true at our Hillel, and it's true at our synagogue. You know, I happen to be a conservative rabbi, but very few of my congregants in Waterville have any meaningful affiliation with the conservative movement. Right. They belong to Beth Israel Congregation because they're Jews in the Waterville area, right? right? In the same way that <clears throat> my colleague in Augusta, Rabbi Erica Ash, who's also on the staff of the center, she's a reform rabbi, but she has plenty of traditionally oriented people in her congregation. So if you look at our services and you look at our congregations, they look very similar because people are choosing their Jewish community not based on ideology, but proximity, and what that inculcates really is if you're not willing to compromise and to bend to the diversity of everybody in your community, Jewish life isn't going to work for you. And I actually think that that could be seen as a disadvantage, but I actually think it's an incredible gift. I don't think that having the ability to break off into sects is really the advantage that many in the Jewish world make it out to be. And it's also good for rabbis. It is. It stretches me, yeah. right? I came from a student pulpit before I was in Maine. I was in Brooklyn, community I loved deeply, um, but was, you know, very firmly conservative and politically more or less homogeneous, right? right? That's what, you know, the, that part of Brooklyn is like. You come to Waterville, Maine, and I have 
Bernie Sanders supporters that head the NRA, and I have Trump supporters that are pro-gay marriage. It's just sort of like, Maine politically is this very weird state. It sort of defies labels. But every time I sit down to write a sermon, I think, how can I teach Torah in a way that inspires the Trump supporter as much as the Bernie supporter, as much as the Biden mm-hmm. supporter, right? Mm-hmm. How? And that's a real challenge, but I actually think it makes my thinking and my teaching better. Yeah. Because I can't rely upon platitudes or partisan speaking line. Yeah, it's a better drash because it's like, okay, I have to speak to the heart of being a Jew, not yes. to the proclivity to a certain kind of Judaism. Yeah, exactly. I love it. I love it. So if you had some advice for us up here in the chilly north, um, which in Maine you have the exact same weather, so there you go. Um, <laughs> th- uh, and by the way, isn't life crazy? If eight years ago I'd said to you, you know, you're going to be a rabbi in Waterville, Maine, you would have said, come on. And yes. there you are. No, I mean, if you had spoken to me when I was in rabbinical school, I would have told you I'm going to be the rabbi of a large suburban congregation in New Jersey. <laughs> and I'm really I'm really not interested in doing anything else. You know, <laughs> basically, I wanted to be my childhood rabbi. Yeah, exactly. God had other plans. Clearly. And laughed <laughs> while you made yours. Um, So if you had some advice for us in terms of cultivating Jewish life in a more formatted and organized way, what what would it be? I think that there are two pieces of advice that I'd give. One is to the Jewish community more broadly, and the other is to small town Jews in particular. I think on the broader sense, Jews in major urban areas in your context, the Torontos, the Montreals, the Vancouver's, really need to see small-town synagogues as valuable, worthy of investment, producing future leaders that can transform uh, the Jewish world, and that there actually needs to be a national plan, that Jewish institutions actually need to work together on a national level and say, how do we make sure that we can create some kind of basic equity so that the type of Jewish education that a Jew in small town in Ontario receives is no less than that of a day school educated kid in Toronto. It might be different, but that you don't just give up and say, well, if you really care, you'd live in Toronto and send your kids to day school. Well, that's making a whole set of assumptions about class and money um, and family that, that are not realistic or fair, and I, and I think really hurt the, the North American Jewish community. So I'd say to funders and also to individual Jews who have the ability to do it, if you really believe every Jew counts, and if you really believe that Judaism is not the privilege of those who have the resources to live in wealthy urban areas, you need to spread it around so that these small communities can thrive. Because what we've found is that there are rabbis that want to live in small towns. There are Jewish educators that want to work in these small communities, especially in a post-COVID world, especially with the Back to the Land movement that has really taken young Jews by storm. Give them the resources to do this holy work, number one. And to small town Jews, what I would say is, keep up the good work. You are doing something tremendously holy. God planted us all around the world so that we could spread, spread the sparks of Torah every corner of the universe. So this is part, I think, of of a divine plan to spread Torah and Jewish values. And I see what you're doing. It's holy. It's beautiful. And if you are capable of it, think about where are the resources that I'm not seeing, the partnerships I can create, strategies I can create, 
that actually make this sustainable and inspirational, right? It took years of work for me to get a little Hillel and a little synagogue less than a mile away to combine their resources and their membership just to make Minyan. Now, nobody could imagine it any other way, and they see it as the most beautiful and unique part of Jewish life in Waterville, Maine. But whether or not we succeed or fail will really be up to our ability to transcend tribalism and territorialism to create some sort of greater good. All right, so I'll try to find somebody and then convince you to schlep up here and uh, do your elevator pitch because it's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. So, But I'll be kind and wait till after the holidays because I know you've got more than enough to do for the next little while. Absolutely. Rabbi, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I wish you nothing but uh, good things uh, in spreading the idea that you have brought to flower in Waterville to the rest of America and the lessons we can all learn about coming together and uh, not trying to find our differences but our commonality in, in why we, we do this crazy thing called being Jewish. Because uh, it's crazy. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> Remember, I'm only three hours away from Canada. So if any of you listeners are ever driving through Waterville, Maine, help us make Minion. I'd love to meet you. Uh, you know what? I was just in Moncton, New Brunswick. I should have come down through Maine. I would have probably bumped into you. Rabbi Rachel Isaacs is the Executive Director for the Center for Small Town Jewish Life. This has been Yehobitzville, sponsored by Pear Tree Canada, reducing the after-tax cost of giving for Canadian major gift donors. Learn more at peartreecanada.com. I'm your host, Ralph Ben-Murgy. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Our music is by Louis Samayo. And if you want to travel with us across this great country, visiting more small Jewish communities, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to hear more of my work, I host uh, Not That Kind of Rabbi. I'll be joined by Avram Rosenzweig for the next little while. We'll co-host together. And if you want to hear more Canadian Jewish stories, you can find them at the Canadian Jewish News' website, cjn.ca. Thanks. And we'll see you next time on Yehobitzville.